As I mentioned, uh, you'll need a copy of God's Word. You'll need it open. And uh, in the Pew Bible, you can find our text this morning, which is Colossians uh, chapter 2. And you can find it on page 983. Uh, This is a letter that Paul wrote uh, to a church that he had not had a chance to visit. He's in prison, so he wouldn't be able to do that even if he had desired, which he definitely uh, conveys his desire to see them. And as he, as he writes to them, you can just imagine as it was delivered, uh, a, a, a church plant, uh, a group of believers gathered together. The intent, of course, was that the letter would then be circulated. And it would even be not just for their benefit and for those uh, in that era, but down through the ages that God was guiding and prompting and speaking to us. Uh, even this very morning as we open up uh, and listen, uh, listening for truth and listening for hope and wisdom and love, all the things that uh, we uniquely can find because of our creator who desires to be in relationship with us. They needed that wisdom and we do too. They needed uh, reminders and we do too. Like I was mentioning last week, uh, Paul put an emphasis on the fact that he rejoiced in his sufferings. Uh, That is a very strange statement. We all know that it's peculiar for anyone to say, oh, I'm so grateful or I rejoice that I have this hardship or this affliction or these uh, these trials that we're, we're facing. I'm facing Paul's saying that's the case. And then there's this profound mystery. That was the way that he uh, spoke in verse uh, earlier in the chapter, verse 24 of chapter one. Now we are into chapter two. But we said that was part of the pattern, the unavoidable, uh, inevitable pattern that if we are followers of Christ, of course, the, the, the characteristics and the, the encounters with suffering are not unique. Uh, everyone has those. But as Christians, uh, sometimes we uh, even have unique Uh, Patterns of suffering identified with Christ and following him. It's a profound mystery, but nevertheless, it's not one that is forever concealed. It is to be revealed to us. Christ is the mystery. He is the hope of glory that someday if we go through trials and troubles, then we shall see him face to face. And that will bring light and clarity and hope and will make a great deal of sense to things. It is C.S. Lewis who once said, Sadness and suffering and ultimately death is the great equalizer. It's the great equalizer. We all come face to face with these situations in the broken world. We all have stories. All of us probably have some degree of stories even brewing beneath the surface. That if we were to know about those, then we would stop and we would hug that person. We would seek them out. We would want to comfort them and pray with and for them. A professor, uh, Nicholas Waltersdorf from Yale, he's a philosopher. He wrote a book. It was not a scholarly work. It was a work written out of his experience as a loving father. The name of the book is Lament for a Son. In the opening of the book, he recounts a story. The call came at 3.30 on that Sunday afternoon. A bright, sunny day. We had just sent off a younger brother on a plane to be with his brother for the summer. Mr. Waltersdorf. On the phone, yes. Is this Eric's father? Yes. Mr. Waltersdorf, I I, I need to give you some bad news. Yes, yes. Eric has been in a climbing accident on the mountain. Yes, yes. Eric has been in a serious accident. Yes, Mr. Waltersdorf. I must tell you, Eric is dead. Mr. Waltersdorf, are are you there? Uh, you, You must come at once. Mr. Waltersdorf, Eric is dead. 
For three seconds, he writes, I felt the peace of resignation, arms extended, limp son in hand, peacefully offering him to someone, capital S, someone. Then the pain, cold, burning pain. His son, who was only 25, did die in a mountain climbing accident in Austria. He writes later in the book, Lament for a Son, I shall now look at the world through tears. I shall now look at the world through tears and perhaps see things that dry-eyed I could not see. I shall look at the world through tears. I think the same in many ways could be said with respect to Christ. Now, I, I, I believe that Waltersdorf goes on, of course, to say that in reflecting on his faith. But, but specifically for us as Christ followers, to have the experience of grief and sorrow and tears and lament, it does tend to, even with those watered eyes, uh, we have a way of seeing not only the world, but we see Christ in a different way. That we actually perceive Christ in a sweeter sense than we can or do with dry eyes. If you don't know what I'm talking about, or the prospect of even that, well, we'll talk after you graduate, uh, or some other place down the road. And I'm not trying to say this is just for people who have graduated. This is for you too, that, are, that you have your own unique sufferings at, at younger stages of life. But if you haven't yet, it will come, not if, but when. It is true that through tears, our physical vision can be obstructed, but maybe it can indeed does at times enhance our spiritual vision that we would take a step further and see through those tears by faith something more clearly. That things that we thought were so wonderful and so uh, desirable then begin to shift and, and change. And I think that's part of what Paul would want us and desire us to see even as he writes this, because it was last week that we said it was through the the. You know, the, the tears, the suffering that he's able to rejoice somehow, that I think even this week we know that the tears that come that bring us also a form of clarity can come because they're tears of, of gratitude and thanks. That we're overwhelmed with emotion and in that thanksgiving and through those tears we also see things more clearly. I think that's part of what's in view. Last week Paul discussed suffering. This week I hope we see Christ more clearly through tears of thanksgiving. Notice, if you will, even as we're about to read it, there's not, not one time, but seven times, even in these you know, brief set of verses, that he says that phrase again, with Christ or in Christ. Why is that important? Because of this mysterious doctrine that we enjoy called our union with Christ, the risen Christ. You're going to hear that echo even as we read it. I know you just sat down, but out of deference to God's word, let me invite you to stand again. We're going to begin with verse 4. Hear this, Colossians 2, verse 4. This is the word of God. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Verse 6, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to 
human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. Would you please be seated? I'm going to pray again. Father, we look to you. We thank you that we have this, your unique gift to us, your word. It's living and active. We know that it can be sharp. We pray that it would pierce. Not not just so that we could be convicted, but that we might be also comforted by the gospel. Lord, I pray, even as I'm experiencing myself right now, just noise and distraction. Pray you'd remove that, that we might hear your voice. Please help us, not only individually, but corporately, to be conscious that you are speaking to us. That we might apply your word and surrender by faith. For it's in Christ's name. Amen. Over the years, I have noticed uh, walking as a Christian and walking with others that uh, there there are people that are professing Christians who find their lives shipwrecked uh, in some form or another, drifting, shifting with the tides, and you wonder where they are. Not not, not just physically or or relationally, but there's something wrong. It's because of sin. Because we're not anchored at times, I know, myself included, not anchored to the promises of God's word and the people of God. The word of God and his promises and the people of God. I've also noticed that even for those who are not drifting, those who are solid in their faith, firm, as he speaks of here in verse 5. Nevertheless, and like I said, myself, I can testify that we find ourselves at times as Christians, still followers of Christ anxious in two realms. They're they're related to each other. I think you'll see why. One of them is that we think about our failures. There's something honest about that anxiety, of course. We're we're troubled by our sin. We're troubled that somehow our temptations and sin will will ruin us and that we will disappoint and hurt. And and, and then even beyond that, that, that God would be displeased or that we would suffer in some way because of that. The second is the anxious thought, what, what am I missing? Because it seems like other Christians have got it easier than me. I, I don't know. I, there's this thought that maybe there's something more that I need than just Jesus. There's something else in view. Is there a secret to living a life that's more spiritual? Because I wonder, it's kind of the FOMO. You know, it's like, am I missing out? Because it seems like someone else finds this Easier or simpler? Are there steps, special steps, special methods, special formulas that I'm missing? I believe Paul addresses both of those 
related thoughts here. As my outline indicates, there seems to be three movements as Paul writes this portion of his letter. There's a command, there's a warning, and there's reasons. The command is to walk in Christ. If you don't think that I'm seeing this, you, you, you try to see it yourself in the text. As it's listed there, there's welcoming and walking. The command walk in Christ, there's opening verses 5 to 7. Then there's this, this warning in verse 8. Also in verse 4, this watching and warning. Then lastly, there's this reasoning and this call to remembering. Why? Because he's saying, listen, here's what I'm commending to you. Then he says, so, so walk this way. Then I want to I warn you to watch out. And then I want to give you the reason why you should do those first two things. And it's all because of the all-sufficiency of Christ. Your deficiency and his all-sufficiency. So these opening uh, verses here, verse 5, he's already offered prayers of thanks. Specifically, he's rejoiced in what he's learned about their faith. Even at a, at a distance, he knows about it. He's heard reports. And so he sees their potential. And, and like a good coach, he, he commends them. He congratulates. He rejoices in what he's discovered. And then in verse 6, he says, just as you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk in him. Now, the word here received is not just like we say, well, I want to receive God into my heart or I want to receive Jesus into my life. Uh, no, this isn't just a, a personal uh, discovery. It's not like, oh, well, the, you know, that day when I had my personal form of enlightenment and I knew that this was the way. And so that's no, no, no. It's receiving what's been commended and handed down to us through the ages, through the, the faith of others, their example the, the whole counsel of God that we must not only uh, hear about, but we also must embrace and praise God. We're, we're responding to that even this morning and bringing a new communing member in Ruth. In many ways, this is a turning point in Paul's letter because he's speaking about this glorious hope of the person and work of Jesus. You hear me say this all the time. The person and work. The person and work. The person and work. But that's it. It's the person and work of Jesus that is so clear in view that he's been unfolding the greatness of Christ. And now he's saying, that's what I'm trying to indicate. And here's the imperative. Walk in Christ. And the rest of the letter is going to be not only the, the truths explained, but the truths applied. The outworkings of this. It's not only the, the things that are indicated that are true about Jesus and God's great love for you. It's how would we respond to those things that Paul desires to see formed and fashioned in them. He's saying you've, you've welcomed this. Now, now walk in this and in him. But don't be so fast because you must remember. I love the fact that when, when Luke records this, we just finished uh, studying the, the gospel of Luke. But it's later in Acts that Luke describes what happens to the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter. At that time, he is Saul. He despises Christians. He doesn't know Jesus. Uh, he knows of Jesus, but he's, all, he's on the road. He's walking to Damascus on his same mission, which he's been at all along, to persecute and to challenge Christians. And who does he meet? What kind of encounter was this? Well, it was a life-changing one, to say the least. That he was blinded for multiple days. But who did he encounter except the risen King Jesus, 
bright, glorious, radiant. And I love the fact that both in Acts chapter 9 and in Acts 22, chapter 9 is Luke's perspective. Chapter 22 is Paul's personal perspective on that conversion encounter when he surrenders to Jesus. But the thing that I love about it is you put it together and you see the two questions that Paul asks. Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? This would be a good way to live life for any of us at any point on any given day. Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? Now, now this is the important thing I want you to hear. And this is the way it's fashioned. It's patterned this way, going all the way back to the word of God given on Mount Sinai. You need to ask the question, first, who are you, Lord? And then and only then, what do you want me to do? Because otherwise you may get confused. Lord, I know who you are. You're a good rewarder of people who do the right thing. No, no, no. It is all about being rooted and understanding, a full understanding of the fullness of Christ and the fullness of what we enjoy being united to Christ. That Then we go and respond. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now you shall have no other gods before me. Do you understand even that very pattern going back to to the law being given? Well, let's continue. He employs two metaphors here. One of them is an agricultural one and the other one's architectural. The agricultural one, and I'm sorry that our our resident uh, elder uh, arborist is out of town on vacation uh, to uh, correct me or to commend me. But nevertheless, I know that there's a general principle. It's not too hard to imagine this general principle that the, the degree to which you see branches extending out from a physical tree is in relationship and mirrored to what's going on underneath the depth and the extent and the, the range of those roots invisible underneath the surface. Does that make sense? So that, that was not revolutionary. You didn't, didn't need an arborist or a biologist to understand that. But imagine if you would that spiritually his desire is that they and we might be rooted in such a way that we would bear fruit, that we would grow, that we would actually grow and, and that our lives would be a blessing to other people because we have grown and we provide shade and hope and encouragement and the fruit of the spirit, which isn't just for us to enjoy. He wants them to be rooted so that they would bear much fruit. That, no surprise, that's what Jesus said. Jesus himself, you, you go and read, abide in me, John 15, and you will bear much fruit. Why did he say that? Because earlier he said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can grow and do. All right, I'm checking. I know it's warm in here, but uh, is anybody with me? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do Do we need an asterisk? Do we need some kind of small print? I mean, nothing means nothing. But with him, all things are possible. What's the architectural one? Well, it's it's right here, verse 6. The architectural image is being built up. That that tree, not only is a tree, but the churches, it's so often the people of God refer to as living stones built on the cornerstone. I was, I was driving, as I often do on Sunday mornings, over to the, to the ocean. I saw a house being built in Marshfield that's on stilts. That, that's no surprise. Uh, it's right on the coast. So, of course, but I, I saw they had these pylons and 
the, the, the beams that were like wood pressure treated. And they must have been like 18 by 18 square. The, the post there, I counted over 20 or almost 30 of these things. And they, they haven't even begun to lay the floor of this place. It's just all the foundation. I was, I was tempted just to go because I just recently built a deck and I, you know, just wanted to get that thing square so bad. And you have to measure, you know, corner to corner. Oh man, I'm only an 18th of an, uh, you know, an eighth of an inch or an eighth, whatever, 16th of an inch off. That's amazing. This puppy is square and set and firm. That loses everything spiritually if you don't have Jesus. You can amass every nuanced, sophisticated knowledge. You have not the cornerstone. The building isn't square. It's not going to last. It doesn't have a foundation. Storms come. You say, oh no, that's not true. My life's just fine. Give it time. Storm comes. Tears come. Suffering comes. Challenges and doubts. Not every test is for failing. The storm may come and you will be proven to hold up because his love embraces you. His fruit is in your life. You have the roots down there too. Then Paul says that it would hopefully in Christ, of course, that cornerstone, verse 7, that you would thus be abounding with thanksgiving, which is only possible if our roots are going down and our cornerstone is laid. All right, let's move on. Uh, Watching and warning. There's two verses that speak to this. Uh, First of all, verse 4, he says that he wants his desire is that they might not be deluded with plausible arguments. And then in verse 8, the firmness of this warning See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, nothing against uh, philosophy as a discipline here. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's suggesting any worldview or any system that is, um, is conveying or suggesting to us that we need Jesus plus something else. There's something empty. There's something here that he's saying that is is deceitful because it's tricky. It's, it's, not, it's, it, it's not in your face. It's half truth, perhaps. And then at the end day, the result of them is that they can be enslaving. He wants them not to be held captive to some of these uh, teachings because he's concerned that they may be weighed down with them. We don't actually know exactly what, unlike other letters that Paul wrote, we don't know precisely who and what these false teachers were teaching But he is essentially saying that if someone convinced you, if someone persuaded you that you began with Christ and now you need something else to really move on or graduate out into, then you are deceived. Because that's where at the close, and I didn't read it, but is it really important in verse 8? The warning says, not according to Christ. Not keeping in step. So don't don't be confused and and think of all the ways... the list is so long that we can begin to think, but I, I really need to graduate into that spiritual realm. I need to be, I need these beads. I need this rite or ritual. I need this method. I, I, I must be married. I must have this experience in a relationship. Uh, I need these I need, I need to, I, I've got to have a cross-cultural mission trip if I really want to be spiritual. I need this diet. I need these experiences. If I want to be spiritual and accepted by God, then I need something. But what you're really saying is, 
Jesus, but, but, but a little bit of this plus so-and-so and such-and-such. Paul then speaks to the divinity of Christ so clearly in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Do you know what a cult is? Do you, do you know what a cult is? Not occult, but C-U-L-T, cult. Some of you have family members who think you're in a cult. <laughs> and when they meet me, they're like, you definitely are. Now, we, we know what a cult is. Right? What, what's the common denominator? What is, by definition, what makes a cult a cult? You say, well, they always have some kind of peculiar you know, rites and rituals. They have practices that are bizarre they, they probably have a personality or something that's involved that's weird. The common denominator, though, is not... And now all of that might be true. They want, they, they want your money and they want these aspects of your life and so on and so forth. But really, the common denominator isn't those things. It's that they have a deficient and or defective view of the person and work of Jesus. That's always the bottom line. They don't embrace the divinity of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. We said earlier chapter 1, Colossians 1. But then he's saying here, to, to make it even more clear, that all the fullness of the deity dwells in him. If you go to the beach, which some of you may add, yesterday was so hot, and you head out to the beach and you take one of those sand pail buckets and you scoop up all the water that you possibly can. And you say, looky here, I have the fullness of the Atlantic Ocean in here. Yes, it is full of the Atlantic Ocean, but you do not possess the totality of the Atlantic Ocean. You're full of it, but you don't have the fullness of it. He is not saying, Paul is not saying, Jesus is God-like. That's what, that's what the redeemed children of God can be if they're adopted and, and have the Spirit. No, it's the fullness. He is the entirety. In bodily form, blowing our mind as it may be, that God is Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, the fullness of that. We can be filled with Christ by His Spirit. Profound mystery yet again. So he's saying, walk and, and, and watch out, lest anyone convince you that you need somehow, even so, so subtly, Jesus plus something. Last thing, the reason that we would do those two things, he starts to pick up in verse 9, I already read that, but then in verse 10 and in, in following, because we've been filled with him, who's the head and the authority and has all rule, Verse 11, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Hmm, that's odd. Why are we, why are we talking about circumcision? See, I told you, you know, I'm, you know people think you're a part of a cult. It's weird. Uh, remember, this is the mark that the people of God, this is the, the, this is the, the, the distinctive sign that the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jews, were to take on. To signify that they were a people set apart. That they were a people who were unique from the rest of the nations, the Gentiles. That God had placed his merciful affections on them. 
Colossae, the city was filled both with Jews and Gentiles. And many of the church probably was a mixture of those who were from Jewish descent and also Gentiles. And perhaps this may have been where there was some type of false teaching that had crept in. It wouldn't have been the first time the early church had seen it where people had confused. You see, you need to follow Jesus, but you also must be physically marked with circumcision. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. We need a circumcision that is the only circumcision that we need, which is that which is done without hands. In essence, it's done by God. It is a spiritual circumcision of the heart. That even was the design and desire of God with the people of God. Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is what is written there by Moses. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. The heart can be a a, a deceitful thing. And at times our hearts can be hard, calloused, cold, apathetic. We need the shell. We need it removed. We need to to have a sensitivity, a responsiveness, a humility, a surrender. And it's in this verse that we also see the connection, which I, I want to just briefly make, much more could be said about it, between the signs of that covenant. If you're part of a covenant community, how are you marked? How are you identified? What is the team? And I say this, what is the team jersey and what is the, what's, the, what's the family meal? The family jersey and the family meal. And the old covenant under the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was circumcision and the Passover. Today it is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And yet it's even better because here's the connection. There is an outward sign of God's desire for, for his people in the Old Covenant, same is true. Our, our circumcision, Christ's circumcision, it's not talking about when he was eight days old. It's talking about the spiritual circumcision that we enjoy when our hearts are made alive, spiritually united to Christ. When that happens, what is the outward sign of that? Well, it's no longer. It is no longer circumcision. It is baptism. We're part of a new and better covenant that involves women. And our daughters are baptized. This is the sign of the new covenant. Moving on. Like I said, much more can be said. I got another question for you. How do you, for those of you who are followers of Christ, and if you're here and you're not, I would love to talk to you. I always appreciate you being here. Here's the deal. If you consider yourself a converted follower of Jesus, how did you think of your life? How would you, what are the, the terms that you would use to describe your life before being a follower of Christ. A mess, uh, confused, lonely, uh, alienated, a little bit happy sometimes. Uh, I I don't know, what what would you say? There there, there are many things that you could say, right? You could say, I was struggling, I was was broken, I, I, I... I was poor. Well, the, all, all those may very well be true, but the text here, Paul is saying, verse 13, is you were dead. It, it's kind of like going back to, apart from me, you can do nothing. What did dead people do? Right. So, We need, verse 13, let me read it again for us. And you 
who were dead in your trespasses, your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, our sins. How then could we be made alive? We can only be made alive by the removal of that sin. And so the imagery here is twofold. There is a canceling away. It's like a financial and a legal one. It's like, listen, it's, it's done. The debt is paid by Jesus' perfect life. Again, that's why it's the person and the work of Christ. The person of Christ in all of his obedience. The work of Christ in his surrender and, and his perfection to be a substitute for us. And then it's, it's almost as if there's a legal declaration because it's not only that the debt has been secretly paid, but there's been notification put up, so to speak, that it is canceled and paid for and done. It's nailed to what? A, a public symbol of shame, the cross. Jesus was perfect. And then even furthermore, he's, he's executed something. He's carried out some a glorious victory because in verse 15, he has disarmed the rulers of authorities. Friends, there is a reason. Going back to that struggle about what about my failures and what about other people who seem to have it easier spiritually? Let me tell you, everyone has it challenging. But aside from that, one of the reasons is this. We're fighting against darkness. If you don't think there's darkness in the world, clearly, clearly you have not read the headlines. And that darkness sometimes begins to creep in on our own hearts, the turf of our own heart. We see this battle between good and and evil. Why do we doubt? Because we have a foe. We have an enemy. And he loves to twist things and lie and deceive. He's the father of lies, Jesus calls him. He's been a liar from the beginning. That's his native tongue. He says to you, see, you can't change. You, you'll, God will never love you. You're messed up. You're, you're, you can't, you can't oh, try as you may. You're never going to compensate for this one. God can't receive you or love you. Just give up. The great German reformer Martin Luther found himself in many of those dark battles until he was contemplating deep in thought, meditating on God's word on the pot because he had constipation. Romans 1, the just shall live by faith. Here's what he said. He had a dream one day. He's asleep. He has a dream that he encountered Satan and the devil unrolled a long scroll containing a list of all of his sins and held it in front of Luther and said, hey, is this you? Oh, by the way, looks like your own handwriting there. And in the dream, Luther begins to read over these. Some of these. Yep. Yeah, that's true. I got another one. Satan comes over. The devil says, I got another scroll. It documents all these other things that you did and didn't do. And Luther keeps reading. Some of the things that he had long since put out of his mind and wanted to were coming back. And here's the third scroll. The third scroll comes in. By now the devil has no more 
It says, have you forgotten something? Luther exclaimed, thinking, of course, the devil thinks that he's triumphed. He says, quickly, write on each of these scrolls, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So, so, so back, back, back up to, to verse 7 here in Colossians 2. Rooted, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thankfulness. If there was a, if there was a takeaway this morning, Perhaps it would be this for you. And there, there may be other things, and I'll let the Spirit of God sort that out. But let me commend to you this one. Here's one that may very well help us. If we would repent and turn from our lack of thankfulness, think of all. Think of all that He has done. Think of who He is. Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? Father, thank you again for your living word. Would you please guide us, we pray, into a deeper spirit, a posture, a genuineness in our thanksgiving. Lord, we have lost sight. I, I pray that this morning our, our hearts would be captured by the love, the sacrifice, the beauty, the radiance, the glory, the glory that only the people of God knew from the temple, but Jesus said he is the temple. Thank you that all the fullness of divinity dwells in him. Thank you that we live and enjoy all these freedoms because of Christ. Help us, Lord, to be good stewards of that freedom, the resources you've entrusted. Make us ambassadors for Christ. People who speak of a king and a kingdom that's way, way more valuable and precious to us than anything this earth offers we are grateful for where we live and we are grateful for the freedoms that we have and the people and the sacrifice and the leadership that surrounds all of that. Make us mindful and grateful. Lord, I pray you'd be with people who are struggling. Pray for people that are struggling with the desire for physical healing. I, I lift up Jacoby to you today, Lord. He patiently tries to wait for this, this healing process with his leg and ankle. Lord, I pray for people who are looking for a job. Pray for, I pray for my brother, Connor. Lord, I pray for people like Kathy, and she represents others too that are caring for aging and ill parents. Lord, they need perseverance and strength. Some days they need wisdom and comfort. Even as she, like others here too, are struggling with cancer. Lord, I pray even as we head into summer for those who are traveling and and making long journeys even to, to visit family. I especially pray for Ashley and Pa and for their kids as they, hang, as they head to Tonga, that you, God, would just oversee, guard and guide them with your angels, that their time would be sweet and rich with family. Lord, I pray you'd be with the ministries of our church, the things that we're trying to do and carry out under the banner of your love and for your kingdom. I pray you'd raise up more volunteers for all aspects of ministry, servant leaders. 
I do thank you for the profound realities that we've just touched upon in your word and the union we have with Christ. Thank you that we have faith, hope, and love, past, present, and future because of our union with Christ, the hope of glory. We pray in his name.